This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. RNA therapies offer great promise for addressing rare genetic diseases by disrupting the translation of pathogenic genes into disease-causing proteins, or getting the body to produce a needed protein it lacks. But the challenge of delivering these therapies to the tissue where they need to go to be effective has limited the diseases that have been treated with these therapies to date. DTX Pharma has developed a platform technology to address the challenges of delivering RNA therapeutics, and is building a pipeline of RNA therapies. We spoke to Arthur Succo, co-founder and CEO of DTX, about the delivery challenges of RNA therapies, how its platform technology addresses these, and how $100 million financing from earlier this year will be used to fuel its growth. Artie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Danny. We're going to talk about DTX Pharma, its Falcon technology, and how this has the potential to improve the delivery of RNA therapies. Perhaps we can begin with CERNAs. These are are different than antisense oligonucleotides and microRNAs. What are CERNAs and how can they be used to combat genetic diseases? Yeah, I mean, in the simplest terms, siRNAs are a mechanism that you can utilize to repress the expression of disease-causing genes. They differ from antisense in in that they act in the cytoplasm versus the nucleus. And then additionally, they're double-stranded molecules. It's also worth pointing out that that, there's no chemical modifications that can enable antisense, or sorry, sRNA molecules to get into cells, unlike antisense. So they need um, an approach like ours uh, to really, um, you know, to, to be effective. So does this mean that for certain diseases, this is a, a modality that you can get to that other RNA therapies wouldn't work? I think the advantage, I mean, at the highest level, sort of some of the advantages of siRNAs versus, say, an ASO approach are, one, um, they're intrinsically more potent, so, you know, at concentrations that are oftentimes 100 or 1,000-fold um, less, you can get, you know, potent or efficacious repression of gene expression. They also tend to be uh, a bit safer because you can get rid of some of the chemical modifications that, you know, cause some stickiness uh, to, to cell proteins that are associated with ASOs. And then thirdly, they have, uh, you know, quite a long duration of action relative to antisense technologies. Um, that's that's not to say that there aren't um, situations where 
we might use ASOs, um, but in general, our, um, our preference is to use siRNAs for those uh, reasons. Um, situations where you might use an antisense would be in a situation whereby uh, something called exon skipping, where you um, sort of skip over, over uh, you know, a mutant exon in a gene to, to create a shorter but, but functional copy of a protein. And some examples of that might be like with, with dystrophin for Duchenne's. So my, my memory of CERN is, is that they've been challenging to use as therapeutics because they have a short half-life and there's difficult getting them to the cells within the body where they're needed to act. Why have these been difficult in the past to get to where you want them in the body? Yeah, I mean, it's really, um, you know, for almost all RNA therapeutics, the, the answer is almost always delivery. Um, you know, the first uh, problem is that cells don't take them up at all. And there's not really any sort of chemical modification you can do to the backbone of the molecule to enable it to get into cells. The other reason is when you dose these things, uh, they tend to be rapidly cleared within a few minutes uh, by, by either the liver or the kidney, mostly the kidney, um, in an unconjugated form. And so you don't get, you know, opportunities to get, get into cells. You know, folks um, over the, the course of, you know, the last 20 years or so have tried um, all sorts of delivery approaches. You know, the primary one being uh, uh, lipid nanoparticles. Um, to enable delivery. Um, but in the end, there was challenges because those tend to uh, you know, distribute primarily to the liver. They tend to be associated with cytotoxicity and, and oftentimes inflammation. And um, so, so, so they were abandoned by almost all companies sometime you know, between 2012 and 2015 in favor of uh, approaches like Galnec, which is a sugar that you couple to siRNA that allows it to get into hepatocytes, but only hepatocytes. And so um, to some extent that overcame uh, some of the cell uptake and safety challenges, but not necessarily sort of uh, delivery to organ systems that, that could also benefit where there's diseases where this class of therapeutics might be beneficial. Uh, the other uh, thing that I might add is that over, over time, um, you know, chemists uh, across a, a whole host of different companies have come up with chemical modifications to the nucleotide backbone of the siRNA, so the A's, the T's, the G's, the C's, um, that render them, you know, really, really stable, um, you know, to endonucleases in the cells that want to chop them up. And then, of course, um, that engineer out some of the propensity to engage the immune system um, in, an, in a non-productive way. Um, so, yeah. DTX has a, a platform technology called Falcon. What is Falcon and how does it address the challenges of delivering CERNAS? Yeah, so Falcon stands for fatty acid ligand conjugated oligonucleotides. Um, the, the Falcon name, uh, comes from actually my, uh, a high school mascot. We were able to make that, <laughs> that work, <laughs> but in any case, um, you know, the, the, where we came, when we came to sort of the, or when I came to the, uh, RNA therapeutics scene, we had noticed that, you know, fatty acids were, were quite a bit underexplored relative to our knowledge of the way they interact with, uh, 
you know, both their receptors and they were, and the way that they interact with albumin. And so, you know, on the cell uptake side, um, every cell in your body has a mechanism to take up fatty acids. Some even have specialized mechanisms. And so you could imagine leveraging those receptors, those transporters, analogous to the way Alnylamionis dicerna have used the Galnac receptor to bring molecules into hepatocytes. The other really cool feature about um, fatty acids um, in other contexts is that they're a tried and true mechanism to promote biodistribution. So there's actually four multi-billion dollar peptide drugs in the diabetes space that leverage covalently attached uh, fatty acids to promote half-life. And so the way those molecules work is the, the fatty acids interact with a protein in the blood uh, called albumin. Albumin kind of serves as an Uber um, to prevent clearance by the kidney and to maintain exposure of those drugs, the insulins, the GLP-1s, to you know, the targets, you know, the pancreas, the muscle, adipose, et cetera. And so um, you know, that problem that fatty acids overcome from peptides is sort of the same fundamental problem that, that RNA therapeutics face, right? Um, rapid clearance by the kidney in a few minutes' time without the fatty acid. And so we, we said this was a really underexplored um, space. And so we set out to do a screen that ultimately led to the identification of you know, fatty acid motifs that you know, not only enable cellular uptake, um, but they also improve biodistribution to tissues uh, like uh, the Schwann cells or like muscle cells. And then additionally, um, additionally, I lost my train of thought there, <laughs> but additionally, um, uh, oh, they were comprised of uh, naturally occurring fatty acids amongst the most prevalent in your body. And, and they're sort of of the same ilk that were used on those approved drugs, of course, in a different context. And so, you know, that's, that's, where we saw um, opportunities to, to deploy fatty acids. Well, how did you come to look at fatty acids in, in the first place as a potential way to solve the problem of CERNAS? Yeah, so it's through my, uh, ex, you know, uh, I guess, uh, experience at, at former employers. So while I worked at Johnson & Johnson, I worked extensively in a diabetes space and we worked quite a bit on small molecules targeting fatty acid receptors. So there I learned quite a bit about the way that, that fatty acids engage their receptors, you know, the, the, the conformations, et cetera, but sort of through small molecules. <laughs> and then I um, uh, you know, went off to AstraZeneca. Uh, I was one of the founding members of a biologics group there. And what... Um, we worked on there were antibodies, antibody conjugates, but but a big part of what we worked on were fatty acid conjugated peptides um, for half-life extension and sort of ways to engage albumin to keep things around in the circulation long enough so that they could engage their their receptors. And so, you know, uh, after you know spending some time in Gaithersburg, Maryland, I, I realized I missed San Diego quite a bit. So I ended up a jumping ship and moving to a company called Regulus Therapeutics. Uh, and that's where I came to know the the RNA therapeutics delivery challenge. And, you know, they were on a, a downhill trajectory 
so I, I jumped ship, but, you know, based on my uh, experiences, you know, with other uh, modalities, small molecules and peptides, you know, it seemed like there was uh, an opportunity um, to, to consider using fatty acids to overcome some of the challenges that, you know, came to light uh, during uh, my time at, at Regulus Therapeutics, you know, in, in that field. When there are delivery challenges with new modalities, we tend to see uh, people go after indications involving the liver or the eye. It's not surprising to me to see you have your lead indication in the eye. You have a, an experimental therapy for panretinitis pigmentosa. What is panretinitis pigmentosa and, and how does it manifest itself and progress? Yeah, so... Um, retinitis pigmentosa is essentially death of photoreceptor cells in the back of the retina. And these cells are sort of the first cell that perceives light and sort of starts a signal that talks to your brain that allows you to see. And so this disease is, uh, you know, can be a rapidly progressing uh, blindness. It can also progress quite, quite slowly. Um, but ultimately, it leads to, to quite significant vision loss, um, you know, across of you know, 100,000 patients in the U.S. It's also worth pointing out that there's 100 genes um, that are mutated and in, in, in more than 300 different mutations. And so where the PAN comes in is the approach is meant to be, at least in part, agnostic to the underlying genetics driving the disease. So if you have a mutation in rhodopsin or you have a mutation in, a, in another gene called phosphodesterase 6B, um, this therapeutic, at least in the proof of concept animal models, um, will be predicted to work. And so that's what we mean by the PAN. Well, you're still in preclinical work on this. How would this be delivered? So it's an intravitreal injection. We uh, plan to dose it anywhere between once every uh, three months to as infrequent as once a year. Uh, you know, our preclinical data certainly supports a um, very long duration of action following a, following a single injection. And what's the timeline for beginning human clinical studies? Yeah, so we plan to um, enter uh, clinical studies next year um, in the second half of, of, of 22. We released, recently um, generated some exciting data in, in non-human primates um, that, that supports the, uh, you know, not only the approach, but, but the mechanism. Well, what's known about its activity from those preclinical studies? Yeah, so we get, you know, upwards of 90% repression of, of the target uh, gene. And, of course, in the and, and that's across the different species. And then, of course, in the, the animal models um, of retinitis pigmentosa, we can, you know, prevent um, the pathogenesis of the disease and, and some of the endpoints that we look at include uh, ERGs, which are just a fancy way to, um, you know, you flash light at the animal's eyes and you can measure how well the photoreceptors are firing. We do histological uh, endpoints to, you know, ensure that the photoreceptors are actually protected. And and some of the KOLs we work with have said, you know, it's the most, uh, some of the most striking data they've seen in terms of histology. So those are some of the things that that we've been looking at preclinically um, to justify um, advancing the compound uh, into into patients next year. We recently featured Susan Rudiger from the CMT Research Foundation on the Rarecast, which is focused on catalyzing drug development to treat Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease. This is a, a rare degenerative nerve disease that's been 
difficult to treat in part because it requires targeting the peripheral nervous system. What makes your platform a compelling approach for a condition like this now that you're working with the CMT? Um, it's exciting that you talked to Susan. We love Susan at DTX. She, um, uh, she and DTX have kind of grown up together. Um, we're really attracted to um, you know, CMT1A for a, a number of reasons. Uh, one of those is that it's, it's sort of a killer app for um, an siRNA therapeutic. And the reason being is that, you know, that peripheral neuropathy you described is driven by a duplication in a gene. That gene is called PMP22. So you end up having three, co- the patients end up having three copies of the gene. And so why it's, it's awesome is you have extra expression of a gene. If you bring, you know, you could imagine repressing the levels down to normal. And then, of course, uh, you know, a therapeutic benefit um, resulting just to expand a little bit about what happens when you have extra PMP22. This is a protein that's expressed in the Schwann cells. And the Schwann cells are important um, because they coat those peripheral nerves and they, they produce myelin. And the role of myelin is to provide insulation to support efficient transmission of nerve signals. And when you have too much PMP22, myelination is disrupted and what happens is you get inefficient transmission of, of nerve uh, signals. And so essentially you can diagnose patients based on the inefficient neurotransmission, uh, you know, measured by something called the nerve conduction. Well, hitting this target is quite different than hitting a target in the eye. Do you have to do something to alter the, uh, the fatty acids you use? Or how do you go about changing one molecule to the next to hit a specific yeah. target. Yeah. So it's, there's a couple of things. So it's a balance, you know, in the eye, you know, the, the fundamental problem is just cellular uptake. You don't have to worry about distribution, you know, use leveraging the albumin for distribution. When you come to the um, systemic applications of the technology where you'll use intravenous or subcutaneous injections, there's more optimization because you're, you're solving for two things. You're solving for the cellular uptake component of the mechanism, but you also have to be sure that the um, uh, molecule is around long enough so that it could have sufficient exposure um, to the peripheral nervous system. And so we explore you know, different combinations of fatty acids, orientations, et cetera, um, to drive uh, delivery to Schwann cells. I'll, um, I'll just mention that, you know, the approach is not necess- not the equivalent of the galnac of the Schwann cells. You know, we do get some delivery to other tissues, but the idea is that it's now balanced between these tissues so that you open up a nice therapeutic window um, versus, say, a lipid nanoparticle or other technologies that really aggregate in the liver and, and they accumulate, preventing your ability to access some of the other tissues. In March, you announced a $100 million venture round. What will this allow you to do, and how far will it take you? Yeah, so the, the runway is to the end of, of, of 2023. Um, the big inflection points for us over the short term is really to continue to generate evidence that this translates to higher species. So across you know the eye, we just got some exciting NHP data, We'll move the CMT1A program to NHPs later this year. We've got muscle programs going into NHPs concurrent with that. 
that will, it will also, so it will now enable us to get through those programs, you know, have two to three um, clinical candidates that are working their way through into IND enabling studies. And in both cases, we should be able to, to dose, you know, some of the phase one uh, work. Artie Sukow, co-founder and CEO of DTX Pharma. Artie, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.